0: pushkin
1: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras aaa is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter before ai can help your business predict demand accelerate growth inform decisions automate
2: tasks reveal insights generate content you have to trust it Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com
3: governance. IBM, let's create. It's just amazing the way it ends. If that's an ending, we don't even know that. Are you sleeping? Uh, is death just simply as like a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep or whatever? Or is there something more? My wife would go on and on about the... because she does believe this far more. I don't know. I just think it's a wonder that we don't know that nobody's ever come back to tell us. and that the last question in a lifetime Full of questions we don't know the answer to them.
0: that was Norman Lear I'm San Fragoso this is Talk Easy welcome to the show
2: It is Sunday, July 14th. Uh, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. And uh, this is generally the part in the show where I introduce our next guest. But uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may have recognized Norman Lear as someone who has come on this show. In fact, he was episode 69 of the podcast back in uh, August of 2017. And, uh, you know, intermittently, this summer and, and mostly throughout August um, of this year, we're going to be running episodes that I find uh, to be the ones that have stuck with me, the conversations that linger in my head uh, months and years after they happen. Although, uh, in the interest of transparency, I did plan on having a new episode this week. But uh, unfortunately, there was a death in the family. My very wonderful Aunt Bertha, who... Uh, was really one of those people that was genuinely selfless. Uh, I don't meet many people like that. Uh, They're rare. They're really very rare. And uh, her loss will be felt in my family and in in the relationships and people that she had in her life, independent of our family. And uh, I just want to dedicate this episode to her and all the goodness that she brought into this world. I don't know if, if I or this podcast um, always manage to follow in that line, in that thinking of contributing joy and good into the world, but I know uh, we certainly try here on the podcast. So this is an episode with Norman Lear. It's from two years ago. It's one of my favorites. The question of death and mortality is brought up as Norman, uh, is a very lovely and still brilliant 96 years old. You know, we talk about all in the family. We talk about legacy, career, family, divorce, uh, all the things that are important to him. And uh, this is one of the episodes that made me realize that I absolutely need to keep doing this show. And so if you haven't listened to it before, uh, I hope you like it. Um, I think Norman is a fascinating guy, and uh, just a great talker with with so much life in history, both inside him and his work. Uh, if you have listened to this episode before, you know what. Um, I hope you have a good week, and uh, maybe enjoy re-listening to this podcast. So, without further ado, uh, my thoughts and prayers to uh, uh, my aunt Bertha and to our family. There's no easy way of going about death and, um, you know, call your aunt, call your uncle, call your parents, call your grandparents. I know I certainly don't enough and, uh, I'm going to go do that right now. So
0: here is Norman Lear.
3: Tregoso.
0: that's really good. It's almost like we rehearsed. This I worked before. on it. You worked hard before I <laughs> came over here. Let's start off with a thank you for letting me come into your office and and do this.
3: How hard is it? I mean, I'm sitting in this comfortable room with that nice face across uh, past two microphones. Ah, it's I like it.
0: You're leading with a compliment of my face. This is nice. Yeah, yeah? it's a nice face. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know. I imagine a lot of people come in and have come into this office. You've been here for a while, right?
3: We've been here for a while, yeah. Mm. Reasonable amount of people. Too many people? Never too
0: many. Is that that your life philosophy?
3: I like people. I like people very much. They fill my life. Mm. They and what they do and what they cook and what they mean and how they love. You were never an isolationist. I don't believe I... no, Not in this lifetime.
0: You said, you know, something I wanted to lead with at the top is that you've done a lot of interviews in the last few years, in part because of the documentary, the book that came out, and Uh you being who you are. And in turn, I've heard you sort of relay the same stories again and again because we all tell each other the same stories that define us. And something you've talked about I read in three different things now. You have this quote and you said, I've lived every friggin' moment of my life to get to look at you leaning on your hand, to get that smile just now, to hear whatever you're thinking, to be in the room while you thought it. It's taken every split second of my life to get here. And here we are.
3: I I love that. (laughs) And it's incontrovertible. I mean... My use of the word incontrovertible a moment ago, it took me every split second of my life to get to say that, and now hear myself repeat it, and look at you smiling.
0: <laughs> it's true, and now we're here.
3: And now we're here. It's, and everybody who is listening to us is has taking them every, but I mean every, split second of their lives. You hear me conclude this sentence. (laughs) And they've been waiting for the conclusion of that sentence. But They didn't know they were waiting, but they were.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you right now, you know, August 15th, 2017. How do you feel right now?
3: I feel perfectly terrific. And you're asking me that because I'm 95 years old.
0: No, I'm asking you that because you're a human being sitting across from me.
3: Oh, I like that. Uh, But I'm a 95-year-old human being sitting across from you. That's true. So it makes the question perhaps a little more interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to put any doom and gloom behind it. (laughs) I think I'm asking that because before we started on the television, our president has been talking about the sort of what he believes to be the innocuous nature of Nazism.
3: um, To put it politely. And we're in (laughs) You like that? I think... 16 million people later, uh, at the least, <laughs> to hear the President of the United States say that. Oh, God, the foolishness of the human condition.
0: Have we gotten more foolish?
3: Uh, over these years? Yeah. I don't know if we've gotten more foolish, but this is certainly a highlight foolish moment. <laughs> In the highlight reel, we're
0: going to be... We're going to be in it. 2017, we'll be in that.
1: Oh, my God, yes. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Free trade can be wonderful if you have smart people. But we have people that are stupid. If you really love this country, you have a very, very hard time convincing people that what you're doing is right and that you're really smart. And, like, a lot of us are really smart. I'm really smart. Went to the Wharton School of Finance. Even then, a long time ago, like, the hardest or one of the hardest schools to get into. Did well at the school. Came out. Made a fortune. Wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. Did everybody read The Art of the Deal? We need a leader that wrote The Art of the Deal.
0: Does it con- I guess I-, I wanted to lead with how you're feeling now and that. Are you more concerned unusual
3: with with our country. I am deeply concerned, but I felt when it happened, when uh, he, we're talking about Donald Trump, was elected, he represented the middle finger of the American right hand, and it was the American people saying to the establishment, this is the kind of leadership you give us everywhere we look, take this, and this was him. And I, as I hear myself repeat it, think there's still some truth in that. Mm. So do you think
0: we were leading to this?
3: Because re- I don't see leadership anywhere. I don't see, I mean, corporate America, as Eisenhower predicted that is, five star general, two time Republican president, Dwight David Eisenhower, as he predicted on his way out of office. Watch out for that military industrial complex. And in his first uh, draft, he referred to it as the military-industrial-congressional complex. Mm. And uh, as I look at America, it is choking us to death now. More
0: so than it was in the 70s or 80s.
3: Oh, yes. It was when Eisenhower warned us, he warned us about it It was coming. Prophetic. And uh, it is... (laughs) It is here and has been here.
0: Did you think back then that it would shape out to something like this now and that you'd have to spend your days thinking
3: about it? Oh, I, I, no, I could never have. You know what the question reminds me of? I loved Burlesque as a kid. I used to go when I was at college, I was only there for a year before the war came, and... There was a burlesque theater called the Old Howard in a place called Scully Square in Boston. You're from Boston, Scully Square. Do you remember Scully Square? No, in, I'm no, from no, Chicago. Was, oh, there was somebody sitting here <laughs> earlier from from uh, Boston. It's close enough. That's close enough. It's America. The comic and the straight man fascinated me. And the comic knows everything. I mean, the straight man knows everything. He knows exactly what should be done, what you should do, how the world works. And knowing everything, he had the comic bumping into walls constantly. (laughs) So I have thought in recent years that the straight man was the establishment and the comic was the American people. And the straight man had the American people bumping into walls. Now, Donald Trump becomes president. And he is the leader in this country. So he has to be the straight man. So I have to reconsider what I'm... Because he's a clown. How can he be the straight man? But we do have a clown playing the straight man. And we are bumping into walls. And behind those walls are such things as uh, bombs, hydrogen bombs.
0: He's been miscast.
3: He's been entirely miscast. I guess you could put it that way. Have we miscast? But we, I, I can't say the American people have miscast their president without somehow bringing the establishment into it. They've miscast in a deliberate way.
0: Well, I think we've done the miscasting. I mean, we elected him after all. Yes, we did. I mean, but not, not it
3: he- was a fuck you, miscasting.
0: Yeah. Do you think, you know, this is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on modern culture right now and how it perhaps gravitates to someone like Donald Trump. And I think in part this is connected to what we're interested in in television. You know, a show you supported... A bunch is The Carmichael Show, one of the best things, I think, that has been on broadcast television in in probably five, six years.
1: Well, gentrification is essentially when developers look at a neighborhood the way Richard Gere looked at Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. You know, you see past all the flaws of the past, you see a perfect spot for a Starbucks or an Ethiopian restaurant run by (laughs) non-Ethiopians.
4: So you're saying gentrification is like when rich people say to a neighborhood, I can change you, and the neighborhood is, like, good because I want to leave this dirty prostitution life behind, and, and the rich people are like, well, I'm going to give you a bunch of money, go clean yourself up so you don't embarrass me in front of my class of friends.
1: Yes, oh. yes, that's exactly what it is, Ma. It's when really nice rich people give a bad neighborhood a new beginning.
4: What? That is such a glorified view of gentrification. Well, what is it then? And can you use a movie example? Well, I don't have a movie example, but I can just tell you what it means if that works. Well, I suppose,
3: but just know I'm be thinking of a movie example the whole time. It
0: recently got canceled
3: for creative reasons. Was it? You know, I'm confused. Was it canceled or did Gerard walk away? Somewhere in between. I, uh-huh. I, th- I think the, the official rap is that
0: he left, but... There were clear creative differences, whatever it was. Do you think right now people in, in in today's age are less interested in the confrontation that something like The Carmichael Show provides, something that All in the Family and many of your shows provided?
3: I don't think people are less interested, no. I think they have to be... I don't know. I'm. You ask me, do you think, and that's all I am doing is thinking but I don't see any reason why they would be less interested now
0: ideas of themselves challenged I mean that's what those shows do
3: uh-huh. but I don't know that this people are the listener the viewer is sitting around thinking I'm being challenged uh-huh. I think that's going that's goes along with it it's happening but I don't think they're viewing because they're feeling challenged.
0: Really? You don't believe that? I mean, the Trump rise is in part in tandem with the rise of reality television. I mean, the numbers show that it's never been more popular than now. So there is a choice on the viewer's part to say, we like this and we don't like this. And the Carmichael show, as great as it was, never received the type of support that something like The Bachelor receives. Uh-huh. I think that's a conscious choice, right? Are or you, are you, or do you think that's an unconscious choice?
3: Well, let's assume it's a conscious choice. I'm, I'm not sure sitting here, we would know why that conscious choice, perhaps as good as the Carmichael show was, the individual didn't care for it. Or now, this is the question of the challenge you speak of. Does that mean they wish not to be challenged? But in that one has to think about were they sufficiently entertained to accept the challenge. As I saw the Carmichael show, I thought they were. But it's it's confusing and, and fascinating.
0: Tough to work out yes. people's motivations behind stuff. Yes. I like the line that you say, were they sufficiently entertained enough to be challenged? Uh-huh. So that means you think they need to be a little entertained before being challenged. You can't just challenge.
3: Oh, I think that's absolutely true. <laughs> they're entertained in a dramatic fashion mm. or in a comedic fashion or a combination of both. But something has to grab them. I mean, they're, they're grabbed by the issue in every direction, whatever the hell the issue is that's being discussed. So something has to... Grab their interests to keep them on the, on the subject.
0: What do you think grabbed people's interest in All in the Family?
3: Great performances to start with, some good writing, but giant performances.
0: And the newness of it. I mean, it felt like something different.
3: Yeah. I, I didn't realize the newness of it until, well, I, until I became convinced of it from all the press and everything later. Because nothing, nothing we were discussing was foreign to us. It was all, you know, neighborhood stuff. I've said this again and again. I knew Archie was different, but said my father had was a touch of Archie. Norman, you're the laziest white kid I ever met. Why do you put a whole race of people talk down to talk? To tell me, I'm lazy. That's not what I'm doing. And you're the dumbest white kid I ever met. <laughs>
0: I've heard you say this before. Yeah, that exact quote. I I'm, I'm I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I
3: like it a lot too. That's why I remember it so well.
0: Do you think you know? You've been asked to talk about your life so often, so frequently, especially lately. Do you think it's easier for you to kind of pivot to a very select few memories and stories to explain yourself?
3: Well, everything doesn't make for a good story, so. You're using the good ones. What do you want to know about the dull ones?
0: <laughs> oh, nothing of that. <laughs> I am interested. Is there a story of your father, or a memory you have of your father that?
3: Elias is a, is a great one. I did a full episode of Maud about this episode of. I mean, in my life with my dad. I'm a theater buff. I was a theater buff when I was a kid. When I was 18 years old, I was driving. Second year of my driving. And uh, my girlfriend, I married her some years later. Charlotte lived in West Hartford. I was in Hartford. I was picking her up to drive to the, uh, what's the theater outside in Connecticut, but close to near Westport Playhouse. Tyrone Power, who was a great, Film star at the time was married to a French woman named Annabella, an actress also. And they were playing in Frank Molnar's Lillian at the Westport Playhouse. Now, Molnar was a major force in my life. I mean, I loved his work. And I loved Lillian, the play, which later became the musical Carousel. Jerome Powell was a great star, I said. I, as I said, so I had a date to take my wife, uh, my then girlfriend, to. Uh, I was driving to West Hartford to pick her up. All I had was a 1936 or something Ford that my friend Sid Pasternak and I bought for 130 dollars or something. But I had I was going to leave at three, pick her up at five, get there at seven thirty or whatever. Those numbers were my dad said in the morning before he left oh I'm not gonna let you take the car I'm gonna be home early enough you're gonna take my car and he was riding nobody remembers the Studebaker but he had a two-year-old Studebaker so three o'clock came and he wasn't home and 310 came and 320 came and he wasn't home and I got into my old Ford and I drove to West Hartford and I picked up Charlotte and we left for Westport, which was at the end of the Merritt Parkway right near New York City. So I'm driving through Merritt and Waterbury and whatever, all the towns to, to, through New Haven and onto the Merritt Parkway, which was the highway to New York from New Haven. I'm on the parkway 20 minutes or so, and there's a honk, 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 honk. And my father has chased me all the way to the Merritt Parkway. He knew I had to be on the Merritt Parkway, so he knew he's going to run into me. And he did, and changed cars. And I drove the Studebaker the rest of the way to the Westwood Playhouse, Westport Playhouse, and my father drove the Ford home. And I, all my life I've thought about that. That was, I always thought my father was a, grandstand player and that was one of the great grandstand plays of my life. So on we did an episode of Maud where she remembered in a psychiatrist's office telling him her life. She remembered a time when her father promised he would pick up the coat that she loved with the Persian lamb collar. <laughs> Gotta remember. And he hadn't picked it up. And she went to the high school prom without it. But he turned up at the last second, having found the guy who owned the store, who had, was home, talked him into coming back to the store getting the Persian lamp coat, giving it to my father. My father drove to this high school and met her at the last moment. Anyway, that's the way we wrote the story for moment. And then she says, I'll see you next Friday. Oh, God, you remember that last line, that turnaround? I love you, Sam. I don't give a fuck. Who knows? (laughs) Well, it's good. I like (laughs) that. No, that you remember that. That's so wonderful. I'm glad uh, that you expressed your love. That that follows her saying, well, I guess guess that's it. I've learned what I needed to learn. (laughs) I know what I need to know now to face the rest of my life. I got Tuesday. I have whatever the hell it was. She recollected thought about it a moment. I said, see you
0: Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. It was good writing. Yeah. Your parents have been a, have been a story of yours and talking about how your father wasn't particularly present. And you described your mom as uh, when going to the war, you wrote her these sort of love letters. And when you got back, you asked her for the love letters, and she said, oh, "I I threw them away.
3: No, when I came back from the war, she showed me the love letters.
0: And then a year later, and she then threw a
3: them year away. La- <laughs> a year later, later, I said. Somehow worse.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> she had them. She showed them. Then she threw them away. <laughs> how, how have you, um, I want to phrase this in a way that makes sense, but. You've turned the stories of your parents into something funny, and there's a quote of you saying, I can turn any situation, no matter how dark, you can always see the funny in it. There's darkness to your parents that I think you know better than anyone, obviously. Did it take a long time for you to get over that? The disappointment?
3: I'm sure it did. I mean, yeah, the, the fact of my life may be that I haven't gotten over it yet, but... Uh, if not now, when? But I'm not. I'm not thinking about it now. I'm not saying that that's a, a for sure. Mm. But it certainly is a possibility.
0: You're not thinking about it now.
3: It's not. You know, it's not holding me. In. It's not where. It's not. It's not using me anymore. Mm.
0: Is that how you've dealt throughout your life with things that were emotionally painful?
3: What do you extract from the earlier? The what, what's the how? What's behind the how? Discarding. Discarding. No, I think I think I pretty much faced and worked through what it was I had to work through. Yeah, I've done a reasonable amount of therapy in the course of my life, which I view as finding a good backboard. You know, hitting the ball against that backboard and. Getting it returned hard. It's clear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's been returned hard to you. Yeah. Does the validation thing matter anymore? I know you felt like your parents were never exactly excited when you got inducted in the TV Hall of Fame. Your mom said, well, they have to.
3: If that's what they want to do, who am I to say? Who am I to say? (laughs) That was her response. When I, when Ed Simmons and I first, we sold something and we were selling things door to door. We were making maybe $40 a week, each of us. And suddenly we sell this piece of material and it results in an invitation to come to New York and work for the Jack Haley Ford Star Review, which was a very early television mm-hmm. review, comedy, music. And uh it happened very quickly and we flew to New York and we landing there was no Kennedy Airport. We landed at LaGuardia. And from LaGuardia I waiting for my bags, I call sixty eight Woodstock Street, Hartford, Connecticut. Five four two eight oh I think was the number. <laughs> oh my God. I I bet that was the number, 54280.
0: Oh. It's coming to you now.
3: And uh, and I called my dad. I, well, he, I called and he happened to pick up the phone. And you sound very close, he said. I said, well, we just landed at LaGuardia. He said, what's happening? How would you get to LaGuardia? And I said, Dad, we're going to be doing a television show, the Jack Haley show. Ed and I were getting $700 for the team. I'll be making $350 a week. And he said after a beat, when you make a 1000 that's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and he hadn't cracked 100 yet.
0: Do you think they were hard on you because they wanted more from you? And they, or rather, they knew that you could do
3: more. No, that would, have, that would presume they thought about it. <laughs> I knew I could do more. I don't think they were thinking about it.
0: You think they just haphazardly said these things to put you
3: down? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm thinking about, they never asked me if I wanted to go to college or talk to me about the possibility of going to college. I went to college. I wanted to go to college. A matter of fact, I have a grandson At the college I ached to go to then, which was Northwestern. That's where my father went. Oh, God, I wanted to go there. And I have a grandson there now. I'm so thrilled to say. But they never talked to me about it. I got to college, Emerson in Boston, because I entered the the American Legion oratorical contest. I think it was the first year they... The American Legion Oratory and first prize for a Connecticut championship, or it might have been the Hartford County. I don't know. But anyway, I won a scholarship to Emerson College, and that's how I got there.
0: Is part of the dynamic that episode in All in the Family, where they're playing the board game and Archie's out for the episode, and they end up very quickly. Sort of constantly criticizing and chastising Meathead. For a whole host of reasons, he's overly sensitive. He doesn't listen to other people's opinions. He's brash. He's arrogant. He's temperamental.
3: Are they talking about him, or when he wasn't there? I don't remember no, the show. It's uh, it's about him. It's that it's that card game they're playing. Uh huh.
0: And he gets upset, and he runs upstairs, and he he doesn't want to play the game anymore, and he flips the board. Uh, his wife goes up there and consoles him he comes back down he gives an apology Lionel's unconvinced by the apology he gets angrier and then he storms in the kitchen and Gene Stapleton you know explains
4: don't you at you. (laughs) Ma, I know why he yells at me. He hates me. Oh no, Mike. she yells at you because he's jealous. Oh, Ma, I don't want to listen to this. Wait a minute. You will. Listen to me. Archie is jealous of you. Oh, come now, on, that man. ain't hard to understand. Mike, you're going to college and you got your whole life ahead of you. Archie had to quit school to support his family. He ain't never going to be nothing more than he is right now. But you, you got a chance to be anything you want to be. That's why Archie's jealous of you. He sees in you all the things that he could never be. So the next time Archie yells at you, try to be a little more understanding. Now, you think that over, and when you're ready, come back in here with us and be with our friends.
3: That dynamic seems similar. Oh, I I love hearing you describe that. I don't remember the episode. I remember vaguely that activity and those words in the kitchen, but I don't really remember the episode well. But it sounds like us. <laughs> and I, I love the way you described it. <laughs> I, I love what that was about. I mean, it's so tender. A Dream Deferred. A Dream Deferred, that's good. Yeah. Uh, that was the title? A Dream Deferred? No, that was just my phrasing. There. Oh. Shit, I can't even own that. Yeah, you
0: can't take that.
3: <laughs> I think you did
0: all right. I think you, you've done fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. Oh, thanks. You know, if you want to put it on the DVD box set, you can change the title. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take some royalty, a minor amount. You got it. In 1972, Hall and the Family was nominated for 11 awards and won seven. The MC was Johnny Carson... And after a commercial break, Johnny said, Welcome to an evening with Norman Lear.
3: Welcome back.
0: Welcome back to an evening with Norman, Norman Lear. Lear. Yeah. What did you make when you heard that?
3: Well, the big moment in my life, what, everything changed. According you seem flustered, to, by the way, when, when, I brought, when I bring this up. Well, because I'm thinking about my wife, Frances. She, I didn't know this had happened until many years later, after we were divorced, and she wrote a book, a memoir. And she writes about that moment in her life when Johnny Carson said, welcome back to the Norman Lear Show. And in her book, she writes that her life changed, everything changed. From there on, she was not Frances Lear. She was Norman Lear's wife and she felt nobody paid any attention to her the only attention anybody paid was to get to me i don't know how big a part it played in in the ending our marriage but it certainly it was a refrain that came up again and again was that a constant challenge for you i had to live my life and i i did and maybe i could have done it better for in terms of uh you know how it impinged on her life but I thought I'd try do you think you put yourself first I think if you're living life well you do put yourself first and if you don't put yourself first you can't take care of anybody else you gotta live your life and sometimes
0: that's gonna lead to people feeling like a relationship is not equitable or fair or well
3: it's you know I couldn't control Johnny Carson any more than I can control, you know, I love my life. It's now full of other people loving my life. (laughs) But uh, that (laughs) came about. I wasn't working to make that happen. What I did made that happen.
0: It doesn't sound like you have any regret or remorse about putting yourself first.
3: I don't believe in regret. I think regret's a waste of time. Have you always thought that? As long as I've been talking about such or as long as people have been questioning me about it, do I think everything I did was right or everything, everybody I touched, I touched correctly or the best? I mean, I did the best and made all the mistakes I made. Hmm. But, you know, the more I try to think about it seriously, the more I believe... Regret is a waste of time, and time is precious. I can't express how precious I think time is
0: every moment. Have you found it to be more precious the older you've gotten?
3: And I know what's behind the question is to be, as time runs out, you find it more precious. I like to think not, and I think not, but. Somebody else has to answer that
0: it's you know you do a good job of unpacking people's questions in a way where you're looking for the subtext of what someone is saying to you you're trying to under you you almost have almost like a secondary answer so as to not entirely answer honestly i think oh yes I think so
3: Give me an example of some question you've asked that I have not answered. As honestly as I
0: might. Both questions about time. You think my uh, subtext is about death, but actually, I'm I'm not considering death for you because you've said many times that death is not part of your present. You don't see it as that. You don't you don't fear it. You're not worried about it. You're not you know like I am very concerned about dying. You seem to be okay. Are you?
3: Oh. I'm not concerned about dying because i have accepted that it's going to happen, <laughs> but a, a long time ago. You've you know, when I was it. when I was finishing the book, you know, in the last month of writing the book. I read in the newspaper that somebody had died. I was—I remember—I was sitting at my desk at, at 102 years. So, and I remember asking myself, would I sign a pay? And I was 92 then. Let's say. Uh, Would I sign a piece of paper guaranteeing that I would live to 102 if I knew I would die the next day? And I thought, never, I wouldn't sign that paper. And then I thought, I don't want it because I don't want to know. And then I thought, if they, how about if they asked me if if it was 122? And I said, no, I wouldn't. I thought I would never sign the paper because I just don't want to know. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, I might sign a paper at 122. (laughs) Why is that? I have to be asked. (laughs) I'll get back to you when somebody asks me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did I cause this? Are you saying now that you're sitting across from me? You want to sign? (laughs) Oh, my God. You know what's interesting is that uh, most people fear and are weary of the unknown but in fact in your mantra it's easier to live in the unknown by what you just said it's easier to not be certain
3: i think i also believe i mean i really think i i live it it's just amazing the way it ends if that's an ending we don't even know that are you sleeping uh, is death just simply as like a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep or whatever? Or is there something more? My wife would go on and on about the, because she does believe there's far more. She's very spiritual. Very spiritual. and uh, But that spiritual includes a whole afterlife. I don't know. I just think it's a wonder that we don't know that nobody's ever come back to tell us. And that the last question in a lifetime full of questions, we don't know the answer to.
0: <laughs> There's something poetic about that. Yes, very. Can I ask you? In, in looking at all these photos and, and doing the research, I have so many people. You said you're a people's person. You like having your life full of people. One person that struck me that you seem to be close to is Maya Angela. On this topic of mortality, but also of regret and how to spend one's days. Is there a memory you have of her or a conversation you remember that was particularly impactful?
3: What was most impactful was her home and the way she conducted herself in her home and the people who came to that home, everybody that worked for her, she was very well cared for. And the home was very well cared for. But they were all Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so. And, uh, and she was always Dr. Angelo, Always. But her table was the only table I've ever known in my life where anybody could show up And race was utterly, it just wasn't present. The question of race wasn't present. I don't know how to say it any better. And and what I'm expressing is because I'm so conscious of race. My generation is a white man. And maybe it's not my generation, maybe it's just me. But I am far more conscious of, well, that's a black man. This good friend is black. Mm. I'm reminded of uh, a time when my daughter, oldest daughter, was 12 or so. She raved about an art teacher that she had in school. And one evening, long after she mentioned this person for the first and hundredth time, my wife and I were at school one evening for some event and met the teacher, and she was black. And I thought, holy she never told me she was black. It never occurred to her to tell me she was <laughs> black. And that was the difference in our generations. Constantly conscious. Mm-hmm.
0: And anxious about? No, not anxious about. It, no.
3: I don't remember ever being anxious about race.
0: Anxiety didn't feel any other work. Interested,
3: really interested.
0: But you, but you were, I mean... I, tell me if I'm wrong, I don't want to mischaracterize. You were somewhat of an anomaly within your generation, I'd say, in terms of being a white man in that age. You were probably more interested in race than most people who looked like you. Is that mm-hmm. fair?
3: I don't know how to make that judgment. I can only say I was interested.
0: Where do you think that came from?
3: I remember you probably know of this cuz you've read every fucking thing about me. But
0: uh man, you said that with some
3: resentment. There. Read, oh, I'm furious. Um you know but, I can I can leave right now if it's but, easier. <laughs> Get it going to New York, sitting on a train. It seemed to me this happened often because I remember and I love this I love saying it this way, a train slipping into 125th street when it slowed down, coming into 125th Street. And it passed on the left side of the train, uh, you know, hundreds of tenements. And the fire escapes of those tenements seemed like you could reach out and touch them. And most of the people living in those were black. So I, I would see black families. And I would think, as in an episode of All in the Family, Edith thought... Oh, that person! I wonder where that person keeps the most important thing in her or his life. Is it a closet? Is it a drawer? Is it what is the item? What you know? I love thinking about that. I came to look forward to slipping into 125th Street and thinking about those families.
0: I think that speaks to your curiosity.
3: Mm-hmm. I think that's what's driven
0: your work your life you
3: seem interested oh I'm interested I'm now interested in Sam I can't oh I hoped I would remember the pronunciation and and I and I'm not even remembering the fucking name now <laughs> let alone the pronunciation I enjoyed we'll get it at the end one quote that is wrong with me that
0: you've repeated and I know I've done this a couple of times now where I've brought a quote up, but uh, you said you were more present for the families on screen than you were for your family at home. Uh-huh. Now, you said that a whole bunch, and I, I don't, we don't need to relitigate that. The one thing I'm interested in is why do you think that was? Why do you think you were more present for something?
3: The way I've always put it, I enjoy putting it, I had five families on CBS and one on Mooncrest Drive. The five families on CBS needed me to live and breathe. The family on Mooncrest Drive, children got up, they got dressed, they went to school. I took them to school sometimes. But I didn't have to pay as much attention in a literal working day sense. My daughter Maggie, the youngest of my three oldest was here just last week and we talked about this for a long time and you know she allowed us how there were years she remembered the years when i was only writing for Tennessee Ernie Ford or George Goble or and she said she she saw a lot of me because i was home writing mm-hmm. and it talked about the how Sadly, the little office I worked in smelled because I smoked, and there's no doubt in my mind that when I really started to work hard with multiple shows, they were all of that work took place elsewhere with you know five writers in a room and and, and a stage full of actors. I couldn't be home the way I was when I was a writer
5: mm.
0: I don't mean to make a very clear and perhaps obvious statement here, but there's clear parallels between in terms of absence when it comes to your father and perhaps your treatment of your kids back then. Mm. Do
3: you think that makes
0: sense or is accurate?
3: I think I did a far better job than my father. I think it seems <laughs> like it too. I was far more involved and far more aware. I'm More aware now than I was then, but uh, you know, I think every day is a learning experience. Mm. You're still learning. Oh Oh my God, yes! (laughs) That's exciting. I had an epiphany this morning at this table. Go ahead. Working with a writer had one reaction to a number of pages he wrote. Totally 180 degrees removed from my young associate whom you met, Brent Miller. And in talking to the three of us on the phone with the writer who's in New York, I I thought they were much younger than I and wrong. And uh, they didn't understand what I was looking for. And learned, and it's just too long a story to go through to 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 thoroughly explain, but I learned that as a result of who I am and what I thought I knew what not what I thought I knew, what I knew, I hadn't been open to something that they knew mm. as younger men having approached this generation from differently from the way I approached it. And and that's why I didn't understand some of what they were talking about or what the work that had already been done. Mm-hmm. And epiphany was the word that Brent used. My that was a real epiphany. You had it couldn't have been bigger. I wasn't aware that as that trapped in my generation, there are some things I don't. It's not to say I don't understand. It's more than that. I don't even see mm. to approach it. it a, yeah, it's out of it's out of size.
5: understanding. It's
0: out of it's out of like yeah. clear vision. Yeah you've always had a knack for at least trying to understand people. Oh, I don't want that to stop. (laughs) No, no. And and in fact, if you don't mind, we're going to... you mind listening to something? Go ahead. For a second.
3: There's some understanding that uh, uh, traditional American values uh, of freedom of speech and expression, of uh, religious tolerance, of uh, that spirit of liberty that learned hand talked about Uh, wherein we view the other fellow's uh, point of view uh, with the same kind of uh, understanding and appreciation with which we'd like our point of view viewed, that these values are worth holding on to, and we mustn't be divided uh, uh, at a time when we are simply anxious, frustrated, and people are offering us these simple answers to complex problems. That's me, isn't it? That is. My voice is different.
0: Well, that was 1982, Norman. Wow. Things have changed. And yet, (laughs) simple answers to complex problems.
3: No, that's nice. I recognize the thinking. But I can't get over the difference in the (laughs) 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 sign. But uh, I could have said that yesterday. Sure.
0: I bring that quote up because it's a quote about listening and understanding Mm -hmm. people. You said that in 1982. That's, you know, it's been two and a half decades. Do you think we're not as inclined to understand each other?
3: Oh, you asked me that this day, after this weekend, after this, how many weeks of this presidency? My God, how how and 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 with the race issue where it is at this moment, how lacking in understanding of each other we are how totally lacking of understanding makes you wonder if there are periods when we drift away from each other. But from a race standpoint, this is the most difficult time, and we are far apart. Does that sadden you? It saddens me. It saddens me deeply, deeply. And it makes me understand how much more any of us... I I think about always about how much more I can do You know, (laughs) I think often, wait a second, Norman, you've never been arrested. And who was it just the other day somebody I admire so much was talking about or I had read about how often he was arrested? Harry Belafonte, maybe. Uh, I've yet to be arrested. So I'm going to conclude this interview and go get arrested. Norman. Norman.
0: I have uh, one last thing before we go.
1: Yeah.
0: It's funny that you mention the idea of what you have done. Because when someone reads a list of your accomplishments, it takes a few days to go through your CV. This is not complimentary. This is just a fact. This is just this is facts. I don't want to flatter you any more than I okay. perhaps have. <laughs> you seem to be reluctant to take any compliments.
3: I accept. <laughs>
0: At 95, you think you've made a difference?
3: Yes, I think I made a difference. I'm told all the time I made a difference. I read all the time I made a difference.
0: I know that's what you read and what you're told. But when you go home, you're trying to fall asleep and you're thinking perhaps in your inner monologue about yourself or about your life. Perhaps you don't do that often, but perhaps you have.
3: I said this a long time ago, a very long time ago, when I was first asked, do I think all in the family makes a difference or is making a difference? If a couple of thousand years of the Judeo-Christian ethic has resulted in being where we are, and we can't see that it's made that much of a difference, what kind of a fool would I be to think my half-hour situation comedy made a difference? So basically, that's where I wind up. Yes, I made a difference, but go find it.
0: (laughs) Norman there. Thank you so much for coming on. You're
3: so welcome. So welcome.
2: Special thanks this week again to Norman Lear. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about him and our podcast, you can visit the site at talkeasypod.com. Uh, on there, you'll find a back catalog of episodes we've done with other TV stars like Alan Alda and Rob Reiner. The podcast, Talk Easy, is available to stream on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, I want to thank our team for making the show possible week after week. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Ghani Zur. And uh, the show is produced and edited by Neil Ennis. I'm Sam Fragoso. Uh, we will be back next Sunday with our regularly scheduled programming. Um, until then, rest in peace to my Aunt Bertha. And uh, happy almost birthday to Norman Lear. One of a kind. I'll see you next Sunday. Have a good week, everyone.
5: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators
4: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
5: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music